On this edition of the Good Morning Hamilton podcast, we will be talking about the war in Ukraine that many people seem to have, if not forgotten about, put on the back burner. Uh, Still going on though, almost 10 months after it started. We'll get into that one. The World Cup didn't quite go as we'd hoped. Uh, yeah, that we'll, we'll talk about that one. Burlington, the masks are on in Burlington City facilities. Is that going to spread? The Emergency Act hearing, where does it go from here now that we're almost $19 million in? Will that happen? Will anything come from it? Uh, is there a Christmas tree shortage? Apparently so. We'll explain why. And there are people who are now choosing for Christmas and other big shopping days, buy nothing. What's that about? Stay with us. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. It shocked me when I looked up to remember when it was that Russia invaded Ukraine. Because it feels like it's, I mean, it's been months. But we're almost at the one, we're two months away from the one year mark that this has been going on. February 24 was when Russia invaded Ukraine. This has now been going on for 10 months. And at the start of this, we talked about it nonstop. Everybody did. You did. Every media did. Social media, nonstop. Not so much now. Things, whether interest has waned, whether our attention span is short, whether it's just not, there's all kinds of other things going on. Whatever it is, we seem to be talking an awful lot less about what's happening in Ukraine with the war. Well, there is an event that's going to be going on at McMaster University that is going to be discussing this. Surely part of this is to make sure that we keep this front of mind. Uh, Mary Halotic is the Vice President of the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress. Hamilton Branch joins us now. Mary, thank you for doing this today. Hi, you're welcome. Good morning. uh, Good morning. So how much of this is that? that, I mean, it seems as though, I don't want to say we've forgotten Ukraine, because I don't think that's true, but it's certainly not discussed nearly as much as it was months ago. Um, Yeah, I guess that's true. (laughs) Um, maybe overkill, I don't know, but um, it's an important um, subject still to continue uh, speaking, especially um, the war is displacing a lot of people, and a lot of them are coming to Hamilton and um, um, finding it difficult, uh, you know, <clears throat> leaving their home and, and so on. So we decided to have a uh, an event with uh, someone who um, still is in Ukraine uh, on a regular basis. He's here in Hamilton uh, for a short time um, till probably just after Ukrainian Christmas, which is January the 6th. So uh, we asked um, through McMaster University uh, Ukrainian Students Association if, if they could help us uh, uh, put together um, uh, just a, a, a short um, lecture, I guess, um, or talk um, with Bogdan Kupic this uh, evening um, with his experiences over 30 years of being uh, back and forth from Canada to Ukraine in uh, a business capacity. And uh, he'll, he'll speak about, um, you know, how things have changed. He, he was there right from, well, almost... Um, a couple of years after Ukraine declared independence um, from the Soviet Union. Uh, so he has an, an awful lot of business experience and experience in living there and with his family as well. His family was there uh, for quite a few years with him. And um, how things have changed, maybe or maybe not, I don't know. <laughs> I would have to think everything has changed. I can't well, imagine it not. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, I guess a lot has changed. A lot of uh, elements, I guess, um, have been um, sort of cleaned up, shall I say? I, I, I don't know, but he'll be speaking about it from his perspective. Uh, he's in business. Uh, he's been there for uh, almost, uh, well, a little over 30 years, and he has an awful lot of experience, um, you know, with even with government, because you meet uh, people through his uh through his work, and uh, it should be a, a, an interesting event. You said that there's a lot of Ukrainians that are coming to Hamilton. How, I mean, it can't be an easy thing to get here. We have a very, I mean, it's very expensive, and I don't know that all of the ones who are coming here, all the people who are coming here are coming here with bags of money that they're bringing that they oh. can survive. It's got to be very difficult to make that adjustment. Uh, yeah, it is very difficult. A lot have... Um, a lot of people um, have maybe a family connection here. Um, a lot have just come through the Kewitz, uh program uh, looking for, to Hamilton because uh, Hamilton is, a, um, from their research, a good place to, to get work, you know, to find work, um, that, that sort of thing. Um, they they um, they have the same issues as anyone here in Canada. You know, you have to find a job, find somewhere to live, um, that kind of thing. The Ukrainian community is is trying to help us as much as uh, as much as we can as well. And a lot of businesses and companies, uh, you know, open their arms to people, uh, you know, Ukrainian newcomers. Um, uh, who maybe don't speak the language as well, uh, English, uh, but they're they're willing to take them on. So there, there's quite a bit of support from the community at large, uh, I, I must say. The, the other challenge I would think would be, um, I don't know about you, I've never lived in a war-torn region. I've never mm-hmm. experienced that, but I would mm-hmm. imagine that if you are escaping from that, some people I imagine are probably haven't seen the fighting up close. They've been in the out, outlying regions, but some of them may have been right in the middle of this. You know, yes. there are psychological things that come along with that as well. You're not just trying to resettle. You're trying to resettle while also dealing with the stuff in your in your brain now. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, yes, there are uh, people here from the uh, Mariupol region. I don't know if you remember uh, a few months ago the, the <clears throat> uh, Russians uh, totally bombed the, the whole city, and uh, um, it's, it's about the size of Hamilton and, um, and a port city as well. So, um, yeah, we, we have people from there who have come here and uh, they find, believe it or not, comfort in those steel mills that are that are <laughs> that are here because that is, you know, what they they remember from their country. From what you're from hearing, country, so. from what you're hearing, are many of them coming here with the intent of going back when things calm down, or are they saying, no, no, that's that's enough. This where I lived is bombed out. It's going to be too long to rebuild. I'm coming to Hamilton. I'm coming to Canada to resettle permanently. Uh, well, there's a mix. A mix. Uh, people obviously, uh, you know, <clears throat> leaving their homeland, uh, you know, have a, a strong affiliation to their homeland, and I'm sure that um, uh, you know quite a few may come, may go may return. But uh, I think uh, uh, many, um, you know, are, are planning to settle here. The, uh, tell us just very quickly, we've got a few seconds left. If people are interested in this event, uh, do they have to go in person as a way to watch it online? Where can they find out where well, this is? Uh, we haven't arranged anything online, but uh, 
Uh, it, it's on today at uh, 6.30 at the A.B. Burns Science Building, room 271 in um, at McMaster University. Um, the admission is free. Uh, we're accepting canned goods <clears throat> uh, at the door if, if uh, you wish to bring a canned good. Um, th- this is basically a um, just a, a, a quick lecture and um, uh, conversation with with Bogdan Kupic about uh, his experiences in Ukraine and maybe even maybe some insights into uh, what he thinks uh, will happen in the future. Mary Halotic, uh, Vice President of the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress in Hamilton. Thank you so much for the time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Really appreciate you too. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. You go to a municipal facility in Burlington beginning this morning, you will see staff there, city staff, wearing a mask. The city of Burlington has re-implemented, re-instituted a mask mandate for at least six weeks in city facilities. Now, it won't be all city facilities. It'll be most, but places like arenas, that'll be a apparently an optional thing. Uh, I wouldn't say for staff. I believe the staff will be wearing it. It's up to you whether you choose to wear it. Nonetheless, this is one of those things that we wonder, is Burlington going to be on the front end of a movement to see more and more mask mandates brought back, or is Burlington going to be the outlier? I want to go to uh, bring in Todd Coleman, who's a scientist in uh, HIV population health, and he's a professor at Wilfrid Laurier University. He joins us now. Thank you for doing this. Thanks, Scott. So what do you think? Is, this, is, is Burlington going to be the one that we look back on in a little while and say, well, they were sort of standing alone, or do you think Burlington is going to be the one that gets a lot of other places to do the same thing? It's really uh, tough to say at this point. We're seeing uh, uh, a lot of people saying we should be doing this, we should be doing this, but no one uh, uh, is taking action. But if Burlington's doing it, hopefully this is the one that starts a chain that uh, just keeps going. You use the word hopefully, so my in- I would interpret then that you would be in favor. Yes, I would be in favor. Uh, right now, just with everything uh, going on in the hospitals, with uh, the h- really high number of respiratory infections right now, uh, it- it's just a it's just a common sense idea. It's it's such an interesting thing because I've I've we've had polls, not we. I mean, the the country there have been polls done in the province and the country, and we've heard people on social media and elsewhere talking about this. And like you, a lot of people saying I'm very much in favor of these mandates. And yet, Todd, when I go to, I was out in a store on the weekend, almost nobody is wearing a mask. And I don't understand why, if you believe that there should be a mask mandate, why you're not wearing a mask when you're out there anyway. You don't, you're allowed to wear a mask, even if there's no mandate. Yeah, it's true. Uh, I I was in the same boat uh, out at stores on the weekend, and I was one of the only people wearing a mask in the entire store. Um, I, I think... I think people need that little extra push. Unfortunately, uh, with the province, uh, a week ago, a couple weeks ago, recommending strongly, I think was the language they were using. Um, I think the mandates just make it a little bit more clear that it's required and it's it's necessary to improve public health. Should we need that though? I mean, I, this is what I don't understand. Again, I, if people believe in something and they say they do, why would you not? then do what you say you believe in. I'm not talking about you. I'm saying the people. If you, if, you, if you say, I really believe that masks are crucial, why would you not wear one? I, don't, I just don't get that. 
I think there's a little bit of a uh, when when the language from professionals says we'll stop short of requiring it. I think that the urgency isn't there. So I, I think that's where we get that sort of discrepancy between what we see people saying they actually would do versus what they're actually doing out in the stores, out in public. Do you think there's, I'm using the word peer pressure, but that idea, do you, do you believe that there's a, a sense that if you are wearing a mask, you are looking frantic or pessimistic or, I mean, I don't even know what the word is. Is there something going on there that would make you not want to do it for social reasons? Yeah, I think it's 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 partly uh, uh, that issue as well, and I think masks themselves are are a constant. They're a visual reminder of what we've been going through for the past three years, and people, uh, for better or for worse, just don't want to be reminded that we were in lockdowns, that we had to wear masks everywhere, that we were required to have vaccines to access certain places. I think I think there's a a, a lot of reasons behind that. Yeah. There has been, and it's a really interesting topic, and I really don't know the truth on this. Uh, Different people have had different positions on it, but there's been those who have said, yeah, you know what, there are these respiratory viruses and COVID and everything else going around, but part of the reason they're going around is because our immunity is down, because we've been masked and social distancing, and we haven't allowed ourselves to have this, especially kids, haven't allowed ourselves to build immunity to this. Is there anything to that? Are we solving one problem by masking in some cases, but creating a bigger problem down the road because we're masking? That's a tough question. And I'm not the, the, the full expert on that. I've seen uh, this theory been put forward. And I've also seen the theory that whether it's true or not, that COVID-19 having ripped through the population has done something to the immune system. So I think there's a little bit more to that. Uh, uh, it's more nuanced than that. And I think some of my immunologist colleagues would probably be able to answer that a little bit better. Is there any kind of middle ground here uh, between the idea that we should have a mandate and the idea that we should not have a mandate? Is there, I don't know what the middle ground might be, but is there anything in between there? Well, it seems as if the, that's the way, with the province strongly recommending masks, they're, they're, they're leaving it up to local health leaders uh, in Burlington, for example, to make the decisions instead. So if that's what we would call the middle ground, I guess that's that's what it would be. But um, really, at the end of the day as well, it, it's the, the mandate in the city buildings is not actually showing, it's not directed at the places where the infections are actually spreading quite quickly, which is in schools. Um, so I, I, think it, I think it's more of a, yes or no situation than, than really any middle ground, because we do need people to mask up so that we prevent the spread in the hospitals from being overwhelmed like they are now. That is uh, Dr. Todd Coleman. He's an assistant professor in health sciences at Wilfrid Laurie. Uh, we really appreciate your time today. Thank you for doing this. Okay, thanks, Todd. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. I wonder if this is going to be the theme song of the commission to find out about the emergency act when this whole thing is done i wonder if anyone is going to be satisfied with the results those who disagreed with the action to take it those who agreed with the action to take it is it going to amount to anything
Let me bring in Daniel Perry. He's a consultant with Summa Strategies. Joins us now. Daniel, thank you for doing this today. Really appreciate it. Oh, it's always great to be on, Scott. What do you think? When this thing is all said and done and the report is filed, whether it says the government was great to do this, whether it says the government was way out of line to do this, has anybody's opinion changed from when this thing started? I think you're right, right off the top, that no one will be happy. There will always be finger pointing. And no matter what the results say, the person that ultimately is decided to be responsible will disagree with it and point fingers and say it's the other person's fault. So I think we're spending close to $19 million just to get a very, very detailed historical report that no one's going to really like. Yeah, that's that was the number that the Privy Council uh, shared last week, late last week, that it's going to cost about $19 million for this. And... You know, on the one hand, you say, well, we don't want to have things done in secret. We need to have this aired out and we need to have this sorted out. But before it even started, when Jagmeet Singh said, it doesn't matter what happens, we're still propping up the government. It's essentially seemed like it was an, an exercise in futility because even if, and I'm not saying this is the case, but even if the report were to say, you know what, the government is complete, was completely out of line and this was completely wrong, to have promised that nothing's going to happen anyway makes this whole thing moot. Mm-hmm. It's a very expensive public relations exercise for the government, I would say in very brass terms. Um, because, yeah, the NDPs had at the end of the day, no matter what they said, even if they were in the wrong and Canadians uh, were violated who participated, the NDPs just going to shrug it off and say, yeah, that's okay. Um, so really, the consequences for the government of this is possibly just looking bad in the court of public opinion. But I will say that the prime minister's testimony uh, last week really did shift a lot of people's opinions, and they thought he looked very ministerial. Yeah, I, he he got. Um... I'll say better than mixed reviews. He did get strong. <laughs> no, he he did get stronger reviews with, with a few exceptions. But yes, it was it was primarily. Um, let's put it this way: for a prime minister who has had a few situations over the years with costumes and blackface and other things, and and who has had some gaffes, uh, he didn't gaff in this one. And so no. you know, he he came across as someone who had been well prepared and had um, not been caught off guard by the questions. And, and it's a rare one because, uh, to be honest with you, when we see him in question period, he's usually just trying to land priors and points. He honestly comes sometimes comes across as a jerk. But in this situation, I was quite surprised by just how calm he was. He even corrected the lawyers a few times, and it really seemed like he had a good control. So I think if Canadians see more of that, I think they may have a little bit more faith in his ability to govern. What about those below him? Because while he got pretty good reviews for his performance, there were other others in the cabinet who got not nearly as good reviews for seeming to be either unclear or uh, uh, confused or dismissive of the inquiry or whatever else. What about those below him? I, I think at the end of the day, as, as the leader, it falls on his doorstep. I, I do agree with you that some of the people below him, especially in his cabinet, they didn't bring their A game. They kind of just kind of shrugged it off and said, well, we did it this way. This is the way we did it. Too bad. Uh, and wasn't very under. They were not very understanding. Where, and I think that looks bad on them, to be honest with you. And I think Canadians are expecting our leaders, especially during this time, especially as we look back on it, to actually do that, be leaders, and not just say it's my way or the highway. What will be okay? So your prediction, and this is only a prediction because we don't know the answer to this. Yeah. Let's say that the report comes back and says, you know. Not necessarily our favorite thing to bring in the Emergencies Act, but the government was warranted to do this. Will that open the door to it being used more often? 
Uh, I think all governments, especially seeing the political blowback that came from doing this decision, will be very hesitant. Um, I think when they do, if a government does look to introduce it again, it will have to be a very serious situation, similar to what it was like in Ottawa. Um, there might have to be a little bit more harder evidence, and it might be a bit of a higher uh, bar to actually introduce it. But I think governments, when they feel the need to, they will introduce it and use it again. If, if the commission says they were justified in using it. And again, if that is said, one of the interesting things about this or one of the tricky parts about this now is going to be there is going to be, as there is with everything else, a political mm-hmm. aspect to this because this was a liberal government that took used the Emergencies Act for people who were protesting them. Mm-hmm. What if it's someone, what if it's a group that's protesting pipelines and blocks mm-hmm. rail or whatever else that is more in line with the government of the day's political thoughts? Are they going to be told, well, you better use the Emergencies Act now because you did it for us? I think that government's going to have to use their judgment in that situation. Um, there's a fine line between governing and petty partisan politics. When you're seeing major trade routes be shut down or your downtown core of your nation's capital and slowly becoming a laughingstock on the international scene, no matter what your ideology is, you kind of have to say step back. And we even saw that in the Conservative Party nearing the end of it, where they're saying, all right, it's time for you to go home. You've been heard and stuff like that. So I think there is some realization within the government, no matter what stripe it is, that there's a fine line between making your political point and actually running a government. It's a great point because it doesn't matter who is in office. Um, any situation now there's going to be, if again, uh, we're assuming, yeah. we're assuming that the report doesn't say you were completely out of line. This should never be done again. If there's any green lighting in this report, Lots of political pressure is going to be put on for any kind of thing in the future. Either you should or you shouldn't use it because we've now seen it. Yeah, and you're exactly right. The water could be very gray, so it's the role of the commission to make a very clear and decisive decision that allows policymakers and politicians the right guidance on how to use this because the last thing you want is, as you pointed out, a government who disagrees with a protest saying, oh, we're introducing the Emergencies Act. But also at the same time, I think that's when public opinion comes in and that's when Canadians are able to voice their thoughts and say, I really disagree with your use of that and and have real political consequences for using it for partisan gain. Just before we go, and again, you don't know the answer to this, it's a guess, but do you think the report will be crystal clear one way or the other, or do you think it will be kind of muddy and leaving things a little bit in the lurch? Uh, so it's a government report, so there's no way it can be Christopher <laughs> Scott, let, let, let's be honest. Um, I, I think it's going to have some tangible things in it, but I, I would not hold my breath to say it points blame firmly at one one individual or one part of the government. I think everyone's going to get a little bit of a black eye on this, but it won't be as bad as it's, a, if it's just one person. So I wouldn't hold my breath. Daniel Perry, consultant with Summer Strategies. Thanks, Daniel. Really appreciate this today. Take care. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Yesterday, anyone who was watching Canada play Croatia was hoping that when we got around to talking about this today, that we were talking about a Canadian victory and the first points that Canada ever picked up at World Cup and a chance for Canada to advance and all those things. Well, as you probably know by now, uh, that didn't happen. Um Yesterday's game was was not Canada's best. It started out pretty well, but turned out to be a, a 
rather crushing loss, and now Canada has been eliminated from the World Cup. I want to bring in Greg Sutton. He is a Hamilton guy. He is also a longtime keeper on Canada's national team. He played pro with all kinds of teams. He's now a coach at Concordia. He joins us now. Greg, how are you this morning? I'm good, Scott. How are you? I'm terrific. Thanks for getting back on here. Um, you watched yesterday. I'm quite positive you did. Uh, were we... Were we set up, set up sounds like a bad word, but are, were our expectations put out of whack by how well Canada played against Belgium so that we expected perhaps more than we should have against a good team like Croatia? Um, <laughs> that's a good question. Yes and no. I think that um, there's a couple things that I took away from yesterday's um, tough loss. One being that, you know, uh, <laughs> the World Cup is hard. That's for sure. Um, and that, you know, you're going to go up against some of these teams that, again, like we had mentioned uh, a few days ago, Belgium, one of the best in the world, and Croatia, one of the best in the world, haven't gotten to the last final. Um, and you're going to, and your team, so your team's going to have to be at, at its best. And, and I, I think that's been the challenge for Canada so far is that, you know, you've got to have all three kind of units, you know, your defensive unit, your midfield unit, and your attacking unit playing at its best. And we haven't really had all three units. Um, put together a complete performance in one game. And I think that was the same with yesterday. Um, and, and the biggest challenge being that, you know, I think that we had some tired legs in the midfield. And that's and that's, and that's that's easily uh, understandable when you've got a player like Atiba Hutchinson who's put a lot of miles on his body. Stefan Estacchio has put a lot of miles on his body of late, of course. And, um, you know, going up against uh, what could be formerly one of the best midfields in the world. Um, one of the best midfielders in the world in, in Modric. So it was going to be a tall task, and, and I think that's where that game was was won and lost, was in the midfield, um, where we just couldn't really get get control of the game. And so it was, a, it was a big challenge for them yesterday, of course. I also wonder that that start, I mean, it was the absolute, it was the dreamest start of all possible starts. I mean, scoring a goal 90 seconds in, whatever it was. In soccer, and you've played for a long, long time, if you, in a moment like that, and I know it's a unique thing to be at the World Cup, but in a moment like that, when it's so exciting, things go so well, when Croatia comes back and scores and then scores the second one, is there is there a chance that there was just a giant adrenaline dump because you'd invested so much in the first half, the first 25 minutes of that game, and it went so well and it was so exciting, then when it turned, you just went, oh, I got nothing, yeah. it's just, it's gone. Yeah. That was kind of the adrenaline dump for, I think, every player on the team and also every fan in, in the country. I was the same way. I mean, I, I went running up and down the stairs in my home and <laughs> screaming top of my lungs. I was so excited. It was such an emotional moment. Um, and it was a dream start, as you said. And I think one of the biggest things that is challenging is to be able to reset yourself to understand that it's not going to get any easier, of course. And, and I think it was also maybe a bit of a wake-up call for for Croatia to be able to now say, okay, well, we've got to get ourselves correct here because, you know, we're, we're in, we're in desperate times as well. Um, remembering that Croatia obviously had tied Morocco in that first game. And so they were desperate po- for points as well. So, yeah, I mean, I think that is where, you know, uh, the good teams are great when they can be able to rebound from, from such a situation like Croatia was able to do yesterday. Um, and, and, and the same can be said um, or the opposite can be said, I guess, for Canada, where you've got to be able to now uh, understand the moment and, and be able to kind of just bring yourself back down and, and keep straight. And I think that's that was the challenge, of course. And um, you know, and then when you when you concede like that, 
the, the doubts creep into your head. And of course, when you can see that another one before half, it's, it becomes even more of a bigger challenge going into that second half of them. Uh, as I'm sure most people around here listening know, Milan Borjan, who is the goalie for Canada, is a Hamilton guy like you. We grow goalies here in Hamilton for some reason. Um, when you're a kid playing soccer and you're the goalie, you want the other team to have the ball and you want them always coming towards you because you want a million shots. That's that's the best game ever if you're getting work. At that yeah, level, when you're, a kid, that when you're a kid, when you're a kid, absolutely. When you're when you're a professional, it's the opposite. You don't want you would you if you were playing if Milan when in that game yesterday would Milan have been totally fine if he never touched the ball? A hundred percent, yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah, you know, I think with Milan, uh, you know, an outstanding goalkeeper, um, and he was great yesterday. And again, yeah, and and I think I think you know the the, the other thing to remember here is that you know you you you're in position this Canadian team is in a position that they've never been in before. And so there's so many pressures, you know, on and off the field that I think, um, you know, it was going to be always going to be a tall task when you're playing against two opponents in Belgium and, and Croatia that have been through this, you know, uh, regularly. And, and as, as silly as that sounds, it is regular for those players because they've, they've been to a few world cups, um, the majority of their rosters where it's new for Canada. So, you know, I think uh, the same can be said for Milan and, and a lot of the players is that they, they've come into uncharted waters. And, um, you know, if, if you're not able to, you know, be at your best, it's going to be a challenging feat. And that, that's what it's been so far. Uh, we have a minute left here. Canada is going to be in the next World Cup because we're co-hosting it. So this team and most of the players on this team are going to be back. Do you then look and say, you know what, this experience alone is enough that it'll make a difference or did you look at something in the last game or two games and say that experience will help but here is the place that we really have to as a country and a soccer country improve is there a part of the team that really has to be bolstered or will the experience do it yeah i think i think depth is going to still have to be something they're going to have to continue to improve on i mean an example would have been yesterday where herman could have made some changes in the midfield but he he didn't have the confidence i guess and enough other players in that area of the field to do so. And the same can be said in the back. So I think that's one area that they're going to continue to address. And it's been addressed and it's been getting much better than it's ever been, of course. Um, but to compete with the best in the world, they're going to have to do that. And we also have to remember that, you know, this was a tough group. I mean, again, keep ca- talking about those two opponents and even Morocco and how, um, you know, turning heads and, and that'll be an interesting game to see how Canada fares against Morocco. Um, but, you know, when we go into this next World Cup in, in 2026, they should be in a, in a group where they should have at least one opponent that will be, a, let's say, perhaps a little bit inferior. Uh, and that'll give them, obviously, a chance to hopefully secure three points there and, and advance, hopefully, in that next World Cup through the group stage. So, um, you know, a good test for them coming up here against Morocco. I think this is something that the, the group will be interested to see how they take it and, and see how much they believe in, in John Urban, what he's preached, and we'll be interested to see if they can get a result against Morocco. It is, uh, we got we got to run. I wish we had more time to talk about Herdman because what he did with the women's team and now the men's team, it's it's, it's almost miraculous, really. And, and you, my, my fear is, and we can't talk about it now, as I say, is that some other country or place is going to say, that guy's pretty good. Maybe we should grab him. Um, another time. Uh, Greg Sutton, former national team member, uh, Hamilton guy. Really appreciate the time today. Thank you, Greg. Anytime, Scott. Take care. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. There are Christmas trees out there, but apparently, I keep reading these stories that say that there is a shortage of real Christmas trees this year. And even the ones that you can get are going to be more expensive.
Shirley Brennan is Executive Director of the Canadian Christmas Tree Association. She joins us now. Shirley, thanks for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me. So, are these stories true? Are we facing a Christmas tree shortage this year? Somewhat. So, so when we talk about shortage, and I don't like using the word shortage, um, we know that there are fewer trees going in the ground, um, which means that there's fewer trees um, in the lots. Having said that, when, when I talk to my farmers, my farmers are saying, listen, we're, we're selling out earlier, so we're closing our farms earlier. And what that means is there's still trees in the field, but those are for years to come because we, we plan everything on a 10-year basis. So why, you say there are fewer trees in the ground, and if you're planning everything on a 10-year basis, 10 years ago, was there a thought that there would be fewer people wanting trees or are simply more people wanting them now than we anticipated? Both. So when, when I say that um, there's fewer trees in the ground, we know by StatsCan that across Canada, we have lost 20,000 acres of potential Christmas trees, which is equivalent to 30 million trees. Now, 10 years ago, people did not just decide, oh, I'm going to put fewer trees in the ground. What happened was, people are retiring and like any farming uh, commodity, we know that it's harder to get the younger people into uh, farming. And what happens is Christmas trees are 10 years before you reap any benefits. So if you and I had to wait 10 years for our our paychecks, Hmm. uh, we might not do what we're doing. Our most uh, weird question, never thought of this before, but are most Christmas tree farmers exclusively Christmas tree farmers? Is this their income from the year? No, um, the younger ones, and when I say younger, I'm talking 60 to 70. That's they, the younger, some of okay. the, Yes, they, they usually work and supplement their income with their Christmas trees farms. The older generation, yeah, that's all they do now. But when they started in Christmas tree farming, it wasn't. They worked full-time jobs and did Christmas tree farming. See, I would have never guessed that there would have been fewer Christmas tree farms because my wife and daughter sometimes have Hallmark Christmas movies on TV. Yes. And in every one of those, there is always 400 Christmas tree farms. And the good looking guy who is the, you know, the hero of the movie is always a Christmas tree farmer. I thought they were everywhere. Exactly. <laughs> and they are. So, so in Ontario, for instance, we've lost about uh, 6,000 acres of Christmas tree farms we're probably going down the slowest amount of Christmas tree farms. Because in Ontario, we have, uh, our farmers are from 10 acres to 40 acres, the majority of them. We do have larger ones. And so we're seeing that smaller acreage are are getting into Christmas tree farming. But with the average uh, Christmas tree farmer being 75 that's amazing 80 um then we have retirement that's really playing a role and and god forbid even passing away before Mm. they even get to um have their farms sold and a lot of people are buying the farms and just not continuing the christmas tree industry i also wonder about um there is um, let me ask the question as opposed to a statement. Is there a sense that younger people now who may be more environmentally conscious don't want a plastic tree, but want a real tree, even though somehow that almost seems opposite that you would cut down a tree, but you know what I mean? Is there, is yep. there more of a desire for a real tree now in, in, in the younger audience? 
Yeah, the younger people are certainly, they want that natural, everything natural, right? And it just makes sense that they want a natural tree. And and the good thing about that is they're also being educated that they're going to a tree farm. They're not just cutting down a tree that has grown in the forest, right? They're They're understanding that this is a crop and that's why they're coming up. So we're seeing a lot more of that. But getting back to our to our previous conversation, and that's how we're trying to attract younger people. So we know that younger people like the natural products. We know that some younger people, and when I say younger, I'm talking 45-ish, not even younger than that. Uh, we know that they, during the pandemic, got to work remotely and maybe have moved out of the cities and into rural areas. And we know that they're really good with attracting people with social media. So we're really trying to focus on getting the younger people into agritourism. And agritourism is where you have more than one crop. Yeah, because you're, I mean, if you're younger farmers are in the 75 range, uh, that's that's kind of terrifying for the future. Exactly, exactly. And not have someone that's going to take over the farm. So when when we really sat down this year, when we got the StatsCam report for 2021 and we saw how they had really, it had really depleted. And, and we know that it's been going down you know, gradually. But when we got that 10 year picture, that was kind of an eye opener. And so then we, we had to sit down and say, okay, how are we going to attract younger people? And, and I really do see that younger people, somebody may be growing pumpkins right now, or somebody may have a farm market. Well, adding Christmas trees is just one more way to do it. The problem with that is right now, we can't supply them with a whole bunch of trees. So it's, 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 it's a long it, wait for sure. It is, anyway. Well, yeah, it is going to be a process, but we're, we're up for the challenge. And we know that there are people calling. We've, I've, my office gets them just about daily in this season. Uh, and then in the spring, I will get several calls of people interested in, in farming and uh, Christmas tree farming. And that's what we want. Shirley Brennan, Executive Director of the Canadian Christmas Tree Association. Thanks for doing this today. Appreciate your time. No problem. And I want to wish you and all your listeners a very Merry Christmas. And you as well. Thank you so much. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Buy nothing. It's a new trend that some people are joining that says, you know what, we're in Cyber Monday today, we're not buying anything. We're gonna give away stuff that we have extra, take maybe something from someone else, a donation, not gonna spend. Black Friday last week, not gonna spend. Christmas, not gonna do it. We're going to get by without spending. Bruce Winder is a retail analyst and author of Retail Before, During and After COVID-19. He joins us now. Bruce, how are you this morning? Yeah, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on the show. You're, uh, you're most welcome. We really appreciate this. So the idea of going into the holiday season, planning to not spend anything, uh, I'm looking at both the good and bad of this. The bad is, well, you know, maybe your kids or you want something. The good is you come out of this thing without a giant credit card bill that you regret in January. Is this a good news story or a bad news story? Well, it, I think it's complicated. Like you mentioned, it depends on your perspective, right? If you're a retailer, this is a bad news story because you want people out there buying your things. You brought an inventory, you create jobs, you pay taxes, you know, so it sort of how it sort of hurts the economy a little bit in that way. If you're someone who uh, is is economically challenged, though, and there's a lot of people who are these days as it relates to inflation and 
uh, interest rates and a whole bunch of other issues, then, you know, this is a good news story because it allows you to kind of get done what you need to get done at a better price or at low, no price. Um, so, so, and if you're an environmentalist too, this is really nice too, because you get to sort of prevent future landfills by reusing items. And I, I honestly think these things are going to get more popular as we, as we go. They might. Um, I wonder, you know, I always wonder if these things are fads, but n- nonetheless, the idea of, n- let's go to the first one, the, the, the saving part first, because we hear every year in January, we get stories of, oh man, um, you know, I got carried away with Christmas and now I've got a thousands of dollars on my visa bill and I really can't afford it. If you can find a way to not be in that position, that, that sounds like a good plan. It is definitely. I mean, we've, uh, you know, whether we like it or not, we've become way, way more consumer focused over the last, you know, call it hundred years. You know, a hundred years ago, people had, you know, one coat and a couple shirts and one pair of shoes and didn't buy everything. I'm not saying that was perfect, but over the last hundred years, you know, we've, we've, we've conditioned ourselves through marketing and things to, you know, have 20 pairs of shoes and 10 coats and a hundred shirts. And, you know, this, there's, there's fast fashion and super fast fashion like Sheen and H&M and Zara. So we've really become, uh, you know, consumerism has really went up probably to a point where it's significantly harming us all. The flip side, as you say of that, and, and I think there is value in and merit in that for sure. The flip side is, you know, just in the last number of weeks here in Hamilton, we had uh, Hamilton Day where everyone was encouraged to go and shop locally. And we hear that all the time, especially at the Christmas season. If all of a sudden lots and and I don't know how widespread this will be, but if lots and lots and lots and lots of people all said, you know what, I'm not going to spend anything this Christmas. I'm going to buy nothing. I'm going to do this. If this were to really catch on, You know, personally, it may be helpful, but corporately and for the economy of our city and everything else, it could be troubling. Absolutely, no. It's 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 a it's catastrophic if you if you look at it from a from a capitalism slash business standpoint, because you know businesses create jobs, they pay taxes. Uh, so so the good news is I don't think this thing is going to catch on to the point where it's going to be mainstream. I, th- I think it's going to remain niche. Some people will do it. Some people still don't want to do it. They want to go out and spend. They want things that are new. You know, they want updated things. So it, I don't think it's going to become mainstream, but it'll it'll definitely. Get, grow as a niche for sure. Do you see though that there are people who would do this? I, I can see people doing this because they are in a tough financial spot. I, absolutely, that that makes a lot of sense to me. Do you see this as being though a philosophical thing where this would grow? That you know we have a lot of people now who you talked about environmentalists who or, or other for other philosophical reasons would say no. I, I I believe in this concept rather than the capitalist concept. No, it's a great point. You make a great point. There are people like that. Even if they're not economically challenged, they say, you know what, this is a great way to do things. We're saving the planet. We're reusing things. And uh, no, there's people who will buy into it philosophically for sure. Uh, and this is this is not unlike, you know, what's happened with the growth of the thrifting market, right? People buy more clothes online. You look at the growth of Facebook mar- marketplace, Kijiji. You know, it's not accidental, right? People realize that they can uh, buy and sell or trade things and, uh, and, and be better off. Now, one question though, one tricky question. Philosophically, if you work in the retail or business sector and you participate in this, are you being a hypocrite? I don't know if you're being a hypocrite because you know what you're you're trying everyone's just trying to survive these days you know and uh 
and everyone's just kind of do what they have to do to survive. So, I mean, I think you're going to see people do both. They're going to they're going to buy at, at retail. They're going to trade some things. Are you a hypocrite? You could argue that. But, you know, people, I think, are just trying to do what they can. And, and they're going to do whatever they can to survive, including uh, do both, you know, buy from both channels or yeah, use both I, channels. I asked that question, and maybe the word is too strong, but I asked that question because if you are working in that sector and other people were to do this, your sector could be impacted and you end up being out of work or affected. It becomes a really tricky one. Again, if this thing were to ever really catch on. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's one of those things that if it ever got massive, you know, the government would probably regulate it and collect tax from it or make it a taxable <laughs> benefit or something. It would, because you know what, they're going to company or companies would jump into it and you would see H and M offering this service or the Bay offering this. That's what's happened with used products is some of the big names in retail have changed their business model. And now you can, you can buy and sell used products through their companies as well. Uh, you, you know what? You're not wrong. We got to run here, but you're not wrong. I mean, look at, uh, uh, look at the uh, concert tickets. I mean, they eventually saw the re- secondhand, second, secondary market and jumped in and now they do that. I mean, it's... Exactly. If you can find a way to get in, you will get in and you're absolutely right too about the government would find a way to, t- to tax it <laughs> somehow. True, yeah. uh, Bru- somehow. Bruce Weiner, really uh, always appreciate your time today. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me on the show. Take care. It's, uh, it's an interesting idea. You can go look it up. Again, it's called the Buy Nothing Group if you're interested in that kind of thing. There's all kinds of them apparently on social media. Uh, go look it up. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.